Hey friends, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here with us this morning. Thanks for having me into your living room or your kitchen or wherever it is that you're watching this morning uh, online. Uh, I want to tell you that one of my favorite parts of our services on Sunday are when the message is over. And as I say that, I realize that's probably one of your favorite parts too. But uh, I love it when people are able to come up to the front and we can talk together, we can pray together, we can laugh and share what's going on. And so we're going to try to duplicate that today. I've got about 20 to 25 minutes of message and then we're going to do something we're calling overtime. And uh, after the service is over, we're going to do one more song after this message. And then Jerry and I are going to come back up here and just take questions. If you've got questions about the topic we talked about today, if there's anything we can be praying with you about, we're going to do that during overtime. So I hope you'll join us for that. Again, it's right here, right after this service. Hey, I want to start out this morning by saying thank you to all of our medical workers and first responders that are watching out there today. I know that we've got a lot of nurses and doctors and PAs and firefighters and EMTs and even medical office managers and and administrators that are out there and you guys are working your tails off and you are killing it out there. And I want you to know that uh, I see you, that we appreciate you and my family and I, we've been praying for you every day. And so thank you for what you're doing. You know, for most of us, our reality is, is different now than it was just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, some of you uh, have been deemed essential, and so you're going to work every day, but maybe with a little less traffic. Uh, you might be working harder. Maybe you're taking more precautions. Maybe it looks a little different for you. For many of us, though, we're stuck at home. And uh, I, I've been actually changed my verbiage. I'm not saying stuck at home anymore. I'm saying we're safe at home. So we're safe at home and uh, we're doing e-learning from home. We're working from home. We've got no place to go and we have a whole lot more time on our hands. And so we're looking for things to do. And so let me ask you, what's your go-to activity when you're bored and you've got nothing to do? If you want to go ahead and write that in the comments, uh, tell people what you do when you're bored and you've got nothing to do at home. For my family, uh, for me and my wife especially, it's watching television. And one of our favorite shows is a show called The Office. Now, I'm going to ask you, not to judge me as a pastor because I watch this show. Okay, I recognize that it's awkward, it's often really inappropriate, and there's almost no redeeming value to the office. But it is funny. If you've never seen the show, it is a documentary-style comedy about a paper company based in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Michael Scott is the regional manager for most of the series of this paper company. And uh, it's about the lives of the employees that work there, and it's a a satirical but sometimes all too realistic look at office life. And one of my favorite episodes is one called Threat Level Midnight. Now this is in season seven and if you've seen Threat Level Midnight you know the story but what we find out in this story is that Michael Scott, the regional manager, has written uh, a movie, has filmed a movie with him playing the central character. Uh, Special Agent Michael Skarn who is an FBI agent and he is recruited by the President of the United States to keep the uh, enemy golden face from blowing up the NHL all-star game. And uh, we learned back in season two that Michael was writing this screenplay, but in season seven, we finally get to see the finished movie and it's terrible, it's poorly shot, the dialogue is horrible, and that makes it all the more hilarious. But from this movie, we learned something pretty sad about Michael's character. And that's that his worldview places him at the center of life. And everyone else, his co-workers, his friends, his lovers even, they are all just extras in his story. Uh, But unfortunately, I don't think that's just Michael Scott. 
I think that's an all too common approach to life and we're gonna see that as an example in our scripture today. If you've got your Bible with you or if you've got Bible Gateway uh, on your computer or your phone, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 20. As Jerry said, we're continuing in our series called When I Look at the Cross. And what we're doing is we're taking a look at the events leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus through the eyes of some of the people who were there to witness it. And today I wanna focus on two of the disciples, a pair of brothers named James and John. Now, John, we know quite a bit about. You may know him as John the Apostle or John the Evangelist. He wrote four, uh, one of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John. In addition, he wrote several letters that we have preserved in the New Testament. Uh, first, second, and third John, and also, also the book of Revelation. Now, John was one of the first two followers of Jesus. So we see him very early on in the story of Jesus. Uh, John had been a disciple of John the Baptist, and when uh, Jesus came out of the wilderness after 40 days of temptation, right at the very beginning of his ministry, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, don't follow me, follow that guy. That's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John, John the evangelist did that. He and, and one other guy just he were the first two that came to Jesus. And uh, so we know that about John. We know a lot less about James. This James is not the James who wrote the book of James that we have captured in the New Testament. That was the brother of Jesus, or rather the half-brother of Jesus because they had different dads. Uh, this James was the older brother of John. Uh, they were fishermen, and together they were known as the Sons of Thunder, which is a pretty cool thing to have on your resume, if I do say so myself. But it probably indicates that they had some fiery tempers, uh, that they were a little bit impatient. And this is really important background for what we're going to see happen next in the scripture. So if you've got your Bible open to Matthew 20, I'm gonna start in verse 17. It says this, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests uh, and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, this is not the first time Jesus has told them this story. He's told them this before. In fact, if you have headings in your Bible uh, where you're reading, it may say at the top of this passage, Jesus predicts his death for the third time. That's what mine says at home. And, and so they've heard this before, but this one certainly has some more urgency behind it. After all, they are now on their way to Jerusalem. That's what the scripture says. They're on their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, we are going up to Jerusalem. Jesus pulls the 12 of them aside and says, okay, now we are going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be arrested and I'm gonna be flogged and I'm gonna be condemned to death, but then I'm gonna come back to life. Get it? Okay, this is happening right now. This is what Jesus just said to them. Now, as a friend, John is a friend of his, uh, he spent the last three and a half years, three and three quarter years with someone. I, I think you would be concerned about your friend. Your friend's just telling you, we're going to this place where I am going to die. Don't you think you would be worried about what's gonna happen to your friend? Like, you don't deserve this. This isn't right. This is an injustice. Let's stop this thing. But that's not what's going to happen. Look at what happens next in verse 20. It says this. Then, now this is really important. I've highlighted this word, then, because what that indicates is this is the very next thing that happens. All right, so Jesus tells them what's going to happen. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant 
that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in the kingdom. Now, here's what I want you to see. Even in this really difficult time, all right, Jesus had just told them what's about to happen to him. But even though they know what's going to happen to him, James and John are trying to make it about them, right? James and John are trying to put themselves at the center of this story. And in case you think I got that wrong and maybe, no, this is just some overprotective mom and she's trying to find a place for her kids. Uh, She's trying to take care of her kids, her boys. You know, remember, these are the sons of thunder, okay? They can handle themselves. And when we watch the response, Jesus responds at first, if you read a little further, he responds to the mom, but then he starts talking to the boys, to to the disciples, to James and John. He says, you can't handle the cup that I'm going to drink from. He addresses the sons of thunder. And then we see the other disciples getting angry. They get angry because this request has been made, but they don't get angry at the mom. They get angry at James and John. They know that this was their plot and that likely they put their mom up to this. They are trying to make the last moments of Jesus' life about them. But before we go too hard on James and John, don't we do that too sometimes? I mean, aren't we a little bit more like James and John than we're willing to admit? Aren't we a little bit more like Michael Scott than we're willing to admit sometimes? I know when I was a kid, maybe from uh, fourth or fifth grade until I was a teenager, probably in my late teens, I had this recurring vision, more than a vision really, it was a feeling, it was this recurring feeling that life was a movie and I was the main character and all of my friends and all my family and everybody around me, they were just extras in the show. And it was to the, to the point where I would go out in public and I would see someone I recognized, but I didn't know where I recognized them from. And I would just think something like, oh, well, central casting must have run out of people. You know, they put these other people in my place. So I've probably seen them somewhere before they're reusing somebody. So this is a real feeling that I had and I'm ashamed to admit it. And I'm even more ashamed to admit that sometimes I still feel that way now. And so if you're a parent of a preteen or a teenager, I just want you to know it's not just your kid. All right. They're off the hook. This is a natural feeling for some people, but as hard as it is for me to admit that now, uh, I think there's something that Michael Scott can teach us, that James and John can teach us, and it's this. You are not the star. And if you feel attacked right now because I'm telling you that you're not the star, I want you to know I'm preaching to myself right now, all right? You, Steve, are not the star. Life is not about us. We are not the purpose of life. We are not the star. Even when you start thinking about you know, COVID-19 and this whole self-isolation thing, uh, it's really easy for us to throw ourselves a pity party. Like for me, our family had to cancel a trip that we'd been planning for almost a year, a trip to Europe that we were planning as part of my sabbatical. And we're not even really sure when we're going to take a sabbatical now. My daughter Grace is a senior and she's she's not going to have a prom. It's likely that graduation is going to be canceled too. And man, that's really hard. And, And I know that there are things in your life right now that are happening, that you've had to change plans. You've had to make adjustments in your life. Uh, You've maybe had to make financial adjustments. You've probably had to make some schedule adjustments and and that's hard and and it's difficult. And uh, whatever you're feeling about that, your feelings are okay. It's natural to feel those things. But if that's what we choose to focus on, it can really drive us into a downward spiral. And that's why Jesus wants to remind us that it is not about us. We are not the star. And what we're going to see in the rest of the scripture is he's going to use this moment to teach that lesson to James and John as well. So let's go on. Matthew 20, 25, verse 25. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them 
and their high officials exercise authority over them. And in other words, what he's saying is to be a leader as a non-Christian, as a Gentile at this time, you've got to exercise, exercise authority. You have to be the boss. You have to be the one who looks down on everybody else, but not so with you, verse 26 says. Instead, whoever wants to be great, become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, Jesus says this. He says, you are not the star. Others matter too. If you really want to be great, Jesus says, you'll serve others. He even says, I I didn't come to be served. Jesus, the, the son of God, the one person in all of humanity who deserved to be served, to have the whole world serve him, says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life for others. He says, others matter too. In fact, just a few years later, one of his apostles, a man named Paul, would write these words to the Christians of the day. He said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, it's interesting to me that he says in here, not just to value others as equal to yourself, but value others above yourselves, right? He says, everybody else, we need to pretend like everybody else is more important than we are. Now, let me ask you, have you ever been in a situation where you are not the most important person in the room? Let me tell you that you have, and I'll tell you where. Uh, If you've ever been to a birthday party that was not yours, right, you were not the most important person in the room. There was somebody there who was being celebrated. And I can just just imagine if you were singing happy birthday to your friend or your family member whose birthday it was, and as you were singing those words, you turned to the person next to you and said, hey, did you know my birthday's in two weeks? Right? You're trying to make it about you. That's that's not, you're not the most important person in the room that day. Or have you ever been to a wedding where you weren't the bride or the groom? Well, let's just be honest, where you weren't the bride, okay? Because the bride is the most important person in the room at the wedding. Now, it doesn't mean that that person has more inherent value than you or that, or that they're more important in the eyes of God. But Jesus says that we should act in a way that indicates that the wants and the needs and the desires and the feelings of others are more important than ours. Now, I just want to say that many of us like to think we put the needs of others first, But isn't it true that we eat the slices of bread and leave the heels for somebody else, right? We we always want to value others, but if it's inconvenient for us or if it interferes with our plans, then most of the time we will choose our plans instead. But Jesus says, always be looking for ways to serve others. And see, that's why this whole quarantine thing is important and why we're taking it seriously as a church and why our family is taking it seriously, it's a great inconvenience for sure. I mean, as a church, we had real momentum. We were finishing up this greater initiative and we're at a really pivotal point for us as a church and it would be much better for us to keep meeting together. And it's hard. I mean, Jerry said, uh, you know, I, I just look around this room right now and I see all these empty chairs and I think about my friends who would be here with us today. I think about my friends whose hands I want to shake and who, who, whose necks I want to hug. And, you know, this is the exact time in history we need the church. Like if ever somebody needed a sense of connection and, and to be in a place where they could feel loved and accepted, this is it. You need this. I need this. 
I miss my church. I mean, for me personally, I have to tell you, I'm not afraid of getting sick. I've been sick before. I'm not afraid to die. I mean, I I feel kind of like the apostle Paul wrote. He says to live is Christ, but to die is gain. For me, it would be much better to die and go to be with Jesus because I know where I'm going. But do you know what I am afraid of? I'm afraid of getting sick and then passing it on especially passing it on to someone who doesn't yet know the saving grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ and having it take their life before they get to secure their eternal home with God in heaven. What breaks my heart about this dreadful disease is that people are dying every day without knowing the God in heaven who loves them and cares for them and wants to spend eternity with them and knowing that they can do it by making the decision to accept the grace and forgiveness of Jesus and follow him. Now what happens next has to be a real eye-opener for James and John because they they leave this place and they head into Jerusalem on the Sunday before Jesus is arrested. We've come to know it as Palm Sunday. And here's the scene they encounter. Jesus asks his disciples to go ahead to the next village and find a colt for him to ride, a colt of a donkey. And this is what happens in Matthew 21. We're gonna skip ahead a little bit, verse seven. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in highest heaven. They, they get into the city. And I want you to picture this. It's the beginning of a holiday week, okay? It's a holy week. And everyone has family coming into town and friends coming into town. They should be in their homes making preparations. Uh, There's a big dinner to be served. But instead, they're out lining the roads and they're carrying palm branches waiting for Jesus. And as this ragtag band of brothers walks into the city, the crowd takes off their coats and, and spreads them on the road and they start waving these palm branches saying, Hosanna, which means save us now. Hosanna, and they're waving and cheering and singing. And you know, James and John are in the back going, they did all of this for us? No, I don't think so. I think in that moment, when they see the crowds worshiping Jesus and they, they had a bit of a wake-up call and they realize this really isn't about them, that there is really something special about their friend Jesus and it's not a secret anymore. Now the whole world knows it. And in that moment, I think James and John learned a valuable lesson and it's this. You are not the star. Jesus is. Jesus is the star. And over the next week, what's going to happen is these men and the other disciples would watch from the sidelines as the most important event in the history of the world unfolded. Over the next week, Jesus would storm into the temple and throw out the money changers. He would join his disciples in one last memorable dinner. He would show them again what it means to be a servant by washing the feet of every single one of his friends. And then he would lead them into a garden to pray where he would be betrayed and then arrested and flogged and spat upon and yelled at and eventually hung on a cross to die. But he wouldn't stay dead because on the third day, God would raise him from the grave and the most incredible comeback ever. And, and these men who were wounded by the loss of their friend, who were trying to go back to their own lives would be rudely and wonderfully reminded that life is not about them. It is about bringing glory and honor to the one true God and to his son, Jesus Christ. And we know they got this 
We know they eventually got it because James would later be beheaded for his faith. He was one of the first martyrs in the church. You can see it in the book of Acts. And John would be the only one of the disciples to make it to old age and to die of natural causes. But he would also go on to be one of the greatest evangelists in all of history. And he would write some of the most memorable words in the history of mankind, especially in Revelation 4, where he writes of this vision of being taken up to heaven and seeing this throne and Jesus, the Lamb of God, is seated on the throne and he writes this, Revelation 4, 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne, there were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Now imagine this picture of these horrifying creatures that look so powerful and so scary up in heaven and what are they doing? Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And seated on that throne in the middle of these creatures that they are bowing down to worship is their friend Jesus. And he is big and he is powerful and he is holy. And if we're not careful, we can get so lost in our circumstances that we can miss the bigness of God. Let's not. Church, let's not forget the holiness of God. You know, over the past few weeks, I've seen so many lists on social media about how you can make the most of your time at home during quarantine. I see friends that are learning to bake bread or play guitar or get in shape or reorganizing their kitchen. While all of these things may be really good and productive uses of time, let me, as one of your pastors, let me let you off the hook, okay? You don't have to do any of these things because eventually your kitchen will be messy again. Eventually the store will have bread again and you'll be able to get it there. And eventually you'll go back to work and you'll run out of time and your guitar will hang back on the wall. But let, re, let, you, let me remind you of this. I'm gonna close with this. If the only thing that happens to you, the only thing you do over the next few weeks is to grow closer to God, it will have all been worth it. If the only thing that you accomplish during quarantine is to grow closer to God, it will all be worth it. And so I just wanna encourage you, friends, make sure you're taking time every day to be in scripture. If you don't currently have a reading plan, download our SOAPS plan. It's on our app. Uh, it's on both of our Facebook pages and on our Instagram. It's just a couple, uh, a couple weeks ago, we loaded it there. There is a scripture for every day and there is instruction for how to work your way through it. Uh, be in prayer every day. Be praying for this virus to end. Be praying that people would turn their face back to God and be praying for the people, the heroes that are out there fighting this virus. And let's not forget meeting together. I know we can't be together in the same place, but I wanna start something new. I wanna start talking about physical distancing instead of social distancing, all right? Socially, we need to be closer than ever, even when physically we're far apart. Make sure you don't get so distracted by your circumstances that you miss where God is moving. Make sure you don't get so involved in your hobbies that you ignore the big, holy God of the universe. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, I am just reminded again today of how holy you are and how big you are, how powerful you are. And Lord, we don't deserve to be in your presence, but that that's the gospel, that you look down on us when we didn't deserve to be with you and you saw our sorry state and you felt compassion for us and you sent your son Jesus to die the death that we deserved and to be raised from the dead to show that you can overcome anything that's happening in our lives. And God, we believe that about you. You are big, you are holy. You can overcome this disease. You can overcome our loneliness. You can overcome depression. You can overcome all the economic factors that are in play right now. Lord, you are big and holy. And God, I just pray for people who are watching right now that don't have that relationship with you or that have never made the decision to follow your son, Jesus. If that's you right now, if you're watching church online, uh, there's a button you can press right there. You can raise your hand to make a decision for Jesus. If you're on Facebook, uh, you can write a comment right now. I wanna talk to somebody about following Jesus or you can send us an email at info at genesischurch.me. Lord, I pray right now for everybody who's considering what is important in their life during this time where we're physically isolated and help us to seek you, help us to remember that you are big and you are holy and all things are in your control. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus, amen.